All right. Well, good morning. All right, we're, we're going to do a little more interaction in a minute, um, so it's, it's nice to hear that some of your voices work. This week, we get to finish up the letter of Philemon. It's a very relationally focused letter, and uh, there's so much relational stuff going on in here that I didn't want to just take the chunk that I was allocated. I'm going to, you know, go, go big and then go home. Uh, I think it would be helpful for us to be specifically thinking about relationship as we conclude this series, Keeping It Real. And I was thinking about relationships because last weekend, I met with some friends from college who I hadn't seen in a long time, one of them for a decade. And uh, it was an interesting uh, experience to, to reconnect with them, and I was thinking back to when I first met them. It was my second year at, at Berkeley, and I got there early to the dorms to help with orientation, and my hall coordinator gave me a piece of paper written on in pen because not just in the lobby here, but back in the 80s, that's how we did things. And uh, he, he was so proud when he gave it to me, and he said, this is your roommate for this year. And I looked at it, and I looked at what music he said he liked, I looked at what major he had, what he liked to do on weekends, where he was from, and I was like, why on earth did this guy think that we'd be good roommates? He looked so proud of himself, I couldn't believe it. So, okay. Well, fast forward a few years, and he's one of the groomsmen at my wedding. A few years before that, I'd been a groomsman at his wedding. It turns out we got along pretty darn well. And it turns out that we'd like to do a lot of things together. We got each other's sense of, of humor, and we were in sympathy on things that weren't on that piece of paper. Pretty cool. We both appreciated a guy named Marty, who was a freshman on our floor that year. Marty was brilliant. He was hilarious. He was fun. He was impish, and he was kind of rebellious, to be honest. And he dropped out of school at the end of that year, moved to L.A. to be a locksmith, and I found out that not only later had he finished a bachelor's degree, but recently finished up his third master's degree. So it just goes to show that you don't know the end of somebody's story if you look at them right now. Uh, my, my other friend, my roommate, uh, suspended his PhD to take care of his family and to help in the family business, and uh, it was just a nice time. It was too long since we'd interacted together, and yet there were not just memories, but as I say, affection and sympathy among us, and I consider that an element of God's common grace. Uh, things that could be natural, but uh, probably wouldn't have happened if God weren't good, and allowing good things to happen in our follow, fallen world. So, as we head into today's passage, I'm redirecting your attention to relational, relational, relational aspects of this letter. It's about relationships. It's based on relationships. It says quite a bit about relationships that God establishes and how God plugs us in, which is the title of today's sermon, Plugged In. And today's passage is just Philemon verses 23 to 25, but I want to invite you to open your Bible to Philemon as I read the letter. If you want to use a pew Bible, it's on page 1160. Um, I don't know what page it's on in your app, but it's between Titus and Hebrews. So, think about how Paul talks about relationships. In fact, what I want to do is to try this. When you notice, as I read, something about relationships, 
say, there it is. Let me, let me give you an easy one. I'm going to start with verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Good job. And Timothy, our brother. Yeah. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Man, this is a relational letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. Hint, hint, thank you. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people. Yeah? All right, I'm not going to pause anymore. I'm just going to keep reading. Better to, you know, think something's relational if it's marginal. Just lay it out there, all right? Because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus, King Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Yeah. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now has become useful both to you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner... Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, and look, we finally got to my passage. My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right. Thank you for playing along. And God, our good and gracious Father, teach us how to connect to you in a way that allows us to connect with one another. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs> it's been great to have Tim back, hasn't it? I've loved hearing his voice up here uh, during this series, and uh, I'm, I'm just... Anyway... I hope you have too. Thinking about relationship, I want to remind you of something that Tim said back 
on August 8th, the first Sunday in the series. The most important agreement between believers is the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? And uh, while, while we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, I want to call a couple of people up here. Uh, actually, the Zilka Compline men, if, if you wouldn't mind coming, coming up here for just a minute. <laughs> I don't see any other Zilka men, Kyle. <laughs> just right, right up here. And if you could make an arch with your hands like I'm a peewee soccer player at the end of a game. Yeah, and just stay there for a minute. Not because I ordered you to, but out of love. This is our basis for ongoing agreement, the good news of the king of a new kingdom, an important new kingdom, in which things on earth will be done heaven's way at last. But this statement is meaningless if you think of the gospel as something you simply agree to in order to be acceptable to God in the sweet by and by in the sky, okay? It only means something if the gospel isn't just the front door to eternity, but is something larger. The gospel can't be a door that I just walk through and never look back. Thank you, guys. You can... Yeah, yeah, you did great. And I apologize, camera operator, for not telling you I was going to do that. I also apologize, sound people, for putting my mask back on and taking it off. Okay, it's more than just a door that you pass through. The second sermon in this series, Tim said, Paul doesn't point to his own authority. He appeals to Philemon's commitment. In other words, he doesn't say, I command you to do this. He says, you've got an ongoing relationship with God through Jesus, our King, and I know that you are going to know the right, the loving, the Christ-powered way to deal with this situation. And I ask that you do that thing that you know is going to be right. So Paul and Philemon share a common bond in the gospel. They didn't just walk through a door, they're walking together connected by the gospel, and the gospel directs their motives. Jesus set me free but I will not set you free, that'd be a terrible look for Philemon, wouldn't it? <clears throat> Jesus paid all my debt, but you must pay off your debt to me? That's not consistent, is it? No. And in fact, Jesus told a parable about this in Matthew 18, 23 to 35, saying that the kingdom of God is like a king who's doing his books. He's settling accounts, and he calls in a, a servant who owes him tens of thousands of bags of gold. Don't ask me how this happened. Things that happened in the King's Vegas didn't stay there or something. But the king was going to sell the servant and his family as slaves to pay off the debt. And, and the servant's like, please, please have pity on me. And the king relented and said, okay, you, you can have your debt forgiven. Okay, what a... What a amazing thing to do. But then what happens? That servant walks out the door, sees somebody who owes him a hundred silver pieces. Pfft. He chokes him. He demands the money back. He has him thrown in prison when he can't pay it. And some people, you know, rat him out. And they tell the king, and the king says, have that guy sent to the jailers and be tortured until he can pay it back. 
Now, I don't know about you, tortured until you pay it back, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. But this isn't my parable. I didn't make it up. This is Jesus. And it means that the grace that we've been shown is the means by which we get to show grace later. And we deny the grace that we've been shown by our King, Jesus, when we refuse, when we are unable, when we are unwilling to pass it along, to show it to others. Philemon has been shown this grace, and here we are with Paul gently saying, I know you're going to pay it forward because you're living in the light of the gospel. And that's because Jesus' followers, they follow. That's what they do. And that's easy enough to say. But why do the followers of Jesus follow him? In the third sermon in the series, Tim said this, God's grace works to change our priorities and to change our worldview. Priorities, worldview. God's grace is so good, church. God's grace says the gospel of Jesus tells you to look at yourself differently as accepted by God. But God's grace also goes beyond just you and just me. It says the gospel of Jesus will continue to change your view of the world and the people in it. Oh, I don't know how many of you know this firsthand, but I can be rather crabby. I don't need feedback here, although I'm unlikely to be able to stop it either. <laughs> uh, so, no show of hands, but Jesus doesn't look at my irritability and say, oh well, and say teehee. What he says is not, Mike, you're out. You've failed, you're done. He says, follow me into showing grace to others, into service to others, and you will lose your addiction to control, Mike. May it be so. I want God's grace to permeate every part of my life. Don't you? Is there some part of your life that you're afraid to submit to him? I, I can't show you this, God. I can't really even look at it myself. I know it's there. If you think you have something to hold back from him, and you've got to do that, and you cling to some part of you huh, that's in conflict with his grace, his plan, his definition of who you should be, can I just tell you, there's nothing that I've actually turned over to God that I regret having given him. It's never happened once. I don't want to get anything back once I've entrusted it to Jesus. I don't want to be anything that the Holy Spirit doesn't empower. These are my desires, but I'll tell you, uh, I'm not done turning things over. I'm not done with submitting. I'm not done entrusting. I'm not done being Spirit-empowered. And here's my question to you. If you have submitted to Christ, what pockets of resistance remain inside you? What motives, what views of yourself or other people? Or let me put it more pointedly, why do you let rebels live in territory that Christ has made new and owns? I think one of my own answers to this question, it seems only fair that I answer it out loud, is simply I forget and I fall back into natural patterns, old habits, and I'm asking God to continue to change my priorities and worldview because it's not just going to happen on its own. I need his intervention. Fourth sermon in the series, Tim said, fellowship is a partnering in the gospel. 
It's not just having lunch. It's not just connecting. I had a good time over refreshments and conversation with my college friends. But sadly, we're not partners in the gospel. We are friends. As much past history as we have, as much sympathy for one another as we have, appreciation for one another as we have, we're not a gospel-centered group. And that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for Mark Frederick and Tim Riley and Kyle Zilka and Daniel Delwood, because they have been such partners in the ongoing cause of the gospel uh, at our church and in my life. They encourage me by what they care about, who they care about, what they're willing to spend their time and money on, and how much they desire to see you and to see me walking by the Spirit. But I'm grateful for our staff as well. I am encouraged weekly at our staff meetings about the vulnerability that we are able to have with one another, the affection that we have for one another, but most of all, the gospel focus of the meetings that we've been having of late. And they encourage me outside staff meetings, of course, in, in phone calls and in interactions. They encourage me in the work that they do for your benefit, for your care, to celebrate Christ, to bring glory to our God. But there's also one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationships where that happens when I'm not being flaky. There's community groups, join one. There's other engagement with you and church. I... I just keep considering how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, as the writer of Hebrews says. In doing so, we carry on a pattern of living that Paul has been modeling, and now he's encouraging Philemon to continue to further embrace that way of life and take the next step. And that's the life that Paul has been living ever since Jesus knocked him off his donkey and changed him from a vicious religious fanatic into the Jewish ambassador of Jesus Messiah's kingdom to the Gentiles, like most of me. Paul's motives used to be dark, but Jesus changed him, and it changed his motives. And Jesus gave Paul a fellowship with other believers, partnering in the gospel. Megan Hill put the church this way, uh, the local church is an unlikely collection of people and with earthly eyes, it may be hard to see that we belong together. With spiritual ones, however, it is clear in the church we all have one testimony. That testimony is God intervened and by the gospel of Jesus, he pulled me out of something, but he continues me in something. And Philemon, as we've seen in this letter, is one of those partners. Onesimus, as we have seen in this letter, is one of those partners. Okay, fellowship with believers is how God prepares us, how he strengthens us, and how he refines us. Huh. So, concluding the former part of the letter with that thought, let's look again at how Paul closes this letter. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And we have enough trouble remembering names that are kind of typical for us. So, let's talk about these people for a minute. Epaphras is a Colossian. 
Paul's letter to the Colossian church, written around the same time as this letter, says this in Colossians 4, 12, and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Notice how Epaphras continues to pray for the church. The church wasn't people who came to a building. The church was the believers, the followers of Christ in Colossae. Didn't include unbelievers, but they still needed God's ongoing application of grace to mature them, to allow them to stand confidently and firm. And I pray the same for you, that you may delight in being God's people and in doing God's will. Aristarchus, according to the book of Acts, he's from Macedonia, from the city of Thessalonica. Um, lots of you visited that this last... Oh, nobody visited anywhere. Never mind. He experienced some adventures and danger, according to the book of Acts, with Paul and is described in the letter to the Colossians as Paul's fellow prisoner, much as Epaphras was just described in this text. These are guys who are all in. How does your life reflect your willingness to be a prisoner in Christ Jesus. It's a terrible analogy, isn't it? We, we would not opt into this uh, naturally. We're a free people. We like that. Uh, a prisoner's life is completely controlled by an outside authority. Uh-oh. If you've submitted your life to Jesus, how does this control of your life take shape? In what ways do you still resist God's will for you which is so much better, so much freer, so much more life-giving than a human prison. <sighs> Willing to be a prisoner because it's prisoner of Jesus, which is a really good thing. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he doesn't say much about himself. He speaks at the beginning of the Gospel uh, that he's done a careful investigation and talked to a lot of people about Jesus' life. And in Acts, late in Acts, he starts dipping in occasionally using we as he's describing what's happening. But we know from Colossians that Luke is a doctor. We know from the second letter from Paul to Timothy that Luke alone was with Paul as he wrote it. He's a faithful companion. He's a faithful recorder of his investigations and his experiences with Paul. What connects these men? Jesus gave them lives that were absolutely not easy but we still study their lives. We're still charmed, in a sense, by how could they do the stuff that they were doing and just keep going after it? We still consider these lives marvels. They're lives of commitment, of openness to what God was doing, and we can admire them, but we can also desire to emulate them in our own contexts. What made them such impactful, memorable people? so important in the cause of Christ? It wasn't their natural abilities. Paul says, yeah, I, I brought stuff to the table, and it was all filthy compared to what God has given me in Christ in my relationship. So, three things. Faithful disciples reflect their God-given grace. I've been given grace, and I give it back out. Second thing. Faithful disciples reflect God's glory. Even remotely looking like God shows something about God to people who don't know Him but know you. 
faithful disciples reflect God's glory, however imperfectly we know that happens. And the third thing is that faithful disciples remain. Faithful disciples don't just receive grace from God. They become connected to God the Father by the work of the Son, Jesus the risen one. And they become powered by God the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul prays for them. The the grace of God, I'm sorry, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Their spirits need King Jesus King's grace. Yes, Philemon and his fellow believers have already received that grace, but look, Paul's asking Philemon to live in an ongoing power of that grace, and so I said before, the gospel is more than a door that you pass through, and I want to suggest a different analogy if you'll throw up the next slide. If you'll throw up the next slide, not that one. If that's all we got, then that's okay. I'll say it out loud. More than a door you pass through, it's the delivery system for a God-powered life. Think of it as plugging into a new grid. You're not walking through and never looking back. You're not looking through and standing by the doorway so that you're in contact with it. You're part of a grid. And yeah, this extension cord doesn't go too far. But guess what? It connects to Chris, and his extension cord goes a little further. And whoever Chris connects it with, it goes a little further. And the mental picture I like best is I'm now able to connect to the power of God by a life remade by my maker, my savior, my God. I want to stay connected to that power, to that grace, and I want to stay connected forever. All of that sounds great, but maybe you noticed I left two names off. I left out Demas's name because of what Paul writes about him in 2 Timothy. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Do your best, he says to Timothy, to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas loved this world and disconnected from Paul. He loved this world. He disconnected from Paul. And the implication is that Demas also disconnected. He unplugged from the power system that God established in the gospel that maybe he's running on battery power in his new worldly environment in Thessalonica. And that may be somebody in this room might be somebody watching the stream or the video or listening to a podcast, and however you're hearing my voice, hear this from someone who wandered. There may be much that you need to process and address in what you've learned and experienced in Christianity. But please hear me, you will never experience life in its fullness while you're disconnected from God's power system. His grace is what you need right now as you're listening to me, but it's going to be what you need tomorrow as well. That's just how we need to be wired. You don't need to acknowledge his goodness and receive his grace for me to care about you. I love a lot of people who have not done those things, but I'll also tell you this, until I surrendered myself to him, I lived an unsettled life. Until I determined to understand as best I could how his righteousness could be satisfied, and yet he could still love me, an annoying person, 
oh man, a perpetually annoying person. And I was lost, <laughs> and I knew it. Only when I'm plugged into the gospel, the news of Jesus' victory over death and sin, even my sin, am I who I'm designed to be. And that's why I take a lot of hope from John Mark, referred in this uh, letter as Mark. He's the model from whom I hope you and I can take courage and resolve. Here's what Acts 15, 36 to 40 says about him. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So Mark dipped on Paul and Barnabas on one of their trips, returned to Jerusalem without them. Paul didn't want to work with such an unfaithful partner. Not unreasonable. But Mark's cousin, Barnabas, was like, I think I can maybe work with this guy. Is this a disaster? No. Instead of one ministry team, there are two ministry teams. This is good, right? Yes, but. But there's a rift. There's a division among God's people, among this team. And some of you who are in Christ have experienced this kind of division. You know the sadness and the anger and the frustration and even the confusion. Maybe somebody let you down. Maybe you let somebody down. But give Paul the last word in this story. His letter to Philemon calls Mark a fellow worker. Here's what he tells Timothy in that much later letter, 2 Timothy, calling Mark by name. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Mark's abandonment wasn't the final word on Mark's ministry. It wasn't the final word on his relationship with Paul. It wasn't the final state for them before both were separately martyred for their king, Jesus. And it's important for you and I to remember God gets the final word on his people. It's not always easy to know what's going to happen with someone who proves unfaithful, who doesn't embrace the gospel, who seemed to embrace the gospel but now embraces something else. But you and I don't get to assume the outcome. And I praise God for that. We get to pray. We get to work with and encourage those who do remain. And we get to cheer on God's work among us. <laughs> uh, I was watching the Cal game briefly last night and having a lot of traumatic flashbacks to inept football teams of the past. But earlier in the week, I was thinking about in 1989 when my friends and I went to a football game, uh, and at halftime, Cal was down 0 to 21, and we said, yeah, they, they, they don't know how to play football. So we went and went bowling at the, the lanes there on campus. And so we missed the comeback uh, on that day in which they ended up winning 29 to 28 over Arizona. And what happened after that was, no matter how stupid the deficit was between the teams, we hung in there till the very last moment. We mocked people who were streaming to the exits, and that's how you end up seeing when your team's down by zero to 30 against Oregon, you can come back and win 42 to 41. 
Now, I shouldn't be a more faithful football fan of an inept college football team than I am a lover of those who are in Christ. And neither should you, whatever your team is, however problematic they might be. What person, what situation, what hope have you seen fulfilled by Christ? If you think back to something that was a problem and Christ sorted it out and you know it was his intervention, this is like the game with the comeback. You can reflect on that and you can say, God is able and I understand a way in which he's able. I don't know if you've gotten tired of my saying that Karen Madsen, now Miller, is a gift from God to me. She's an ongoing source of encouragement for me and delight in Christ because I spent years despairing about my wretched love life before turning it over to God. And I want you to know that only by plugging into the gospel of grace was how we ended up connected in the first place, and it's the only way that we've survived being married with me in the house. So, with the hope that you see in the past, think about the future. What person, what situation, what hope remains to be fulfilled by Christ? If he's calling you or has called you to follow him, I'd like to ask you to reflect on how you can turn over that person, that situation, that dear-to-you hope to God. You can trust him with it. All right, last redemptive arc by way of conclusion. How do you suppose that Philemon responded to this letter? Kind of sounds like Paul has high hopes that Philemon's going to do what he's asking him to do, right? But at the same time, he didn't just send Onesimus. He sent a letter with him that has some, I could tell you to do it for this reason, but do it for this reason. So he wrote the letter. Remember that this letter isn't just addressed to Philemon. It's addressed to Apphia, who we think is his wife. Archippus, another ministry worker in Colossae, and to the whole church that meets in their home. Okay, relationship becomes interesting here. Now, there's a possibility that there's a lot more to the story. So, McCune and Brown say, direct information about him is limited, but it seems plausible that the Onesimus of the letter to Philemon later became the bishop of Ephesus. Please don't put your hope in this. At best, this is a speculation because they have the same common name. So don't hold tightly to that. But just think about if Philemon received this letter and said, nah, I'm not interested in showing that kind of grace, would that letter subsequently have been circulated around the churches so that the, the broader church came to know it? Or was the reason that we have it today because Philemon plugged in, as he was, to the transformative power of God through the gospel of Jesus Express that grace to Onesimus as a brother, as Paul asked. And the church celebrated their perfect living king's work together, not how awesome their house church leader was. So, Jordan, thank you for coming up from Irvine. Would you join me up here and let's continue to celebrate that work together in song. And whether you know this next song or not, whether you sing or sing well or not, Use this time to reflect on making much of Jesus in your life, as Paul asked Philemon to do. Let me pray. God, I ask that you would be directing our thoughts about what you've done in our past and what we hope that you will do in the future. 
And I pray that for each of us that you will allow us to see the connection that you have established through Christ to the good news that he has become the intermediary that we needed to be in your presence and that you've invited us there. Would you allow us to enjoy being there so much that we're willing to live life as prisoners, your prisoners, knowing what a good, good Father and God you are. I pray it in our Savior's name.